as he would teach in parables, they would kind of understand some things about God um, that perhaps they didn't know before, or there would be some information they knew about God that Jesus would want to tweak or want to adjust. And, and it's a little bit of an interesting concept um, because Jesus was speaking to a pretty religiously informed audience. They had a, a, a decent background um, in God. They had a decent background in the Old Testament, or as they would call it, you know, just kind of the scriptures then. And they knew about God, but it was almost as if when Jesus interacted, uh, he would say, there's some things that perhaps we've missed. There's some things that perhaps as you've understood God and as you've experienced God and as you've known God that have been a little bit misguided or need to be tweaked, as with, with any teacher. The, kind of the context or the, the um, understanding of a teacher is that when a teacher teaches, he teaches or she teaches something that people either don't know or tweak something to really bring into alignment something that is already thought of or known, which means the implication of this is perhaps for us, there are some things that we think about God. There's perhaps some things that we think about God that we think are right or we think are true or we think are real, but perhaps are a little bit off. And as Jesus, again, talked to this religiously informed audience, he would sometimes bring up new information to them, and sometimes it was information that they had already kind of understood, but it was just tweaking to help really hone in to who is this person of God. Now, to say all that is incredibly important because what happens for many of us, whether we really realize it or not, um, and I, I guess, let me say this first, in a different context, um, some of you, you experience, and some of this, you'll, you'll experience this as you grow up, um, you have friends who maybe you were in high school, you know, junior, senior in high school, somewhere along that line, and um, they wore a particular type of clothing um, when they were in high school. And let me just be honest, ladies, you guys aren't nearly as guilty about this as guys are, um, but you kind of, you know, you wear something as an 18, 19, maybe 20-year-old, and then you never really grow out of that particular type of thing that you're wearing. And so it's 2016, and you're still wearing baggy jeans like it's 2000, you know? It's like, man, tighten up them ankles a little bit. You know, it's just, you kind of never really graduate or never really continue on. Well, the same thing happens that we were almost all given a childhood as a fa- faith as a child. Many of us were raised in church, around church, or perhaps you just knew about church. You weren't particularly a part of a religious family, but you were raised and you had some thoughts about God. And what unfortunately happens is as we grow up, Oftentimes, the faith that we were given as a child doesn't develop as the rest of our life develops. And so there's for many of us some thoughts and some things that we think about God. That, and this is, I understand this is potentially a little bit offensive. But there's some things that we thought about God as children that were appropriate as children but never developed into the mature thought of adulthood or the mature theology of adulthood or the mature world Christian view of adulthood. And what we're discovering is as we uncover some of these parables, there's some perhaps for some of us new information about God. And for some of us, it's information that we already knew, but it brings balance or it brings realization or into focus or into clarity or into alignment. Some previously held information. Now, let me give you a quick you know, story to kind of introduce what we're going to talk about today. What I hope is, is kind of the end goal for today, but let me kind of tell you via story. Um, many of you know that I run a meat company. It's my family's meat company. And uh, one of the things that happens in our meat company is we have machinery and stuff that breaks down all the stinking time. Anybody who's in manufacturing, especially as a small business manufacturer, you know stuff breaks left and right. You're constantly putting out fires. Um, well, one of the things that happens is that when I'm in the meat world, um, and just kind of in general in life, I don't lead off with like the pastor card. And those of you guys who know me, you know that pretty well of me. What I mean by that is I don't meet somebody new and say, hey, my name is Ben Kemp. I'm a pastor. I'm very spiritual. You know, that's just, it's not my style. Um, So what happens inevitably, and I remember this one instance uh, specifically, 
is we had this guy who was our packing machine rep. Our packing machine, it's, I mean, just prayer request. I almost need to knock on wood right now to make sure it doesn't break because this thing constantly goes down. So we had this packing machine rep, and he's been to our, our plant you know, too many times that we have to pay for. But our machine constantly breaks down. And as it broke down this one time, um, he was up there, and he was fixing it. And uh, actually, in a conversation that he had, I believe, with our business manager, um, they were talking, and you know, he's just kind of being himself and talking all this stuff. And she, she at some point goes, well, you know, Ben's a pastor, right? And all of a sudden, there's like this light bulb that goes off in his eyes. And, and, and unless you've kind of been in some kind of a spiritual position, you, you, you've maybe never experienced this. But all of a sudden, he starts recounting all the times that he's cussed in our plant, you know? And he's like, oh my gosh, I, you know, I wasn't going to hell until I knew a pastor was listening. And all of a sudden, like, I am doomed, I am condemned, you know? But what's, what's funny is that it happens to be pretty often that, you know, a, a week into our friendship, you know, a couple days into our friendship, somebody will find that I'm a pastor. And then all of a sudden, it's like light bulbs go off and they feel like they need to automatically repent and at the same time give me their church attendance. And I grew up doing this and that and went to Sunday school and let me just tell you praise Jesus and I'm like all right cool can we can we get back to bench press please so anyway what I'm hoping happens this morning is a similar experience because what we're going to talk about is a side of God or a character of God that we oftentimes in church don't talk about what we love to talk about in church, what we love to sit under in the idea of Christianity is the love of God and the grace of God, and we love to talk about the forgiveness of God and the goodness of God, and those things are absolutely critical. Now, what we're going to learn about this morning is something that we don't like to talk about because, frankly, it is un comfortable. But as we discover a side of God, and as we relearn about a side of God, or for many of us, as we just sit under this side of God, what we're going to find is that the side of God, which is the holy, righteous judge, it brings so much depth to the love and the grace of God in our lives. So if you've got your Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus talks in a parable. Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. He put another parable before them. Now, he's talking again to a big crowd at this point, a crowd that's kind of gathered. He's on a boat kind of floating around because there wasn't enough room for him to talk on the, on the shore where he was. So he gets in the boat, and he's floating around. He's talking to this big group, and as he's talking to this group, he had already talked in one parable and explained the parable, and then he starts to another parable. And he says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to... Now, Jesus often did this. Essentially, what he's saying is, the kingdom of heaven, the person of God, the character of God, the plan of God, the, the way that God interacts with human beings, the way that God loves, the way that God judges, he would say, basically, let me tell you something about God, and he would equate it to an earthly story or an idea or a principle. But in this principle... Parables were basically meant to communicate one thing, one thing specifically. And it's up to us to understand what it was meant to, to communicate. Now, let me just give you a little you know, side tip about parables before we continue on. Parables to some people were enlightening, and to other people were terribly confusing. The one that we're going to read was one of the confusing ones. In fact, Jesus gave about 40 parables in the New Testament. And of those 40 parables, 38 he did not explain, only two he explained. The one that we talked about last week he was going to explain, the one that we're talking about this week he's explaining. Because we're sitting there thinking, okay, <laughs> let's at least start off with two that we know we're right on. You know, if you come to church next week, 50-50 shot whether we actually understand it or not. But these two, these two, Jesus explains what he's going to mean for us. He says, well, let me tell you a little bit of a story first. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds, and among the wheat, and went away. 
So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared, or appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? In other words, they say, there's a problem here. We thought you sowed good seed. We thought it was all, you know, good harvest filled. Let's gonna, we're going to, you know, sow a bunch of weed at the end of this thing. And all of a sudden we look at it and there's weeds everywhere. Come on. What happened? Was there, was, was there a mistake? Did you do something wrong? So how then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then you want us, then do you want us to go gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, what they understood kind of intuitively because of the way that Jesus taught was that something in this represents God, and something in this represents us. Something in this parable represents God, and something in this parable represents us. Now, we also understand that from a bit of a religious standpoint. Kind of, we, we view all these parables through the religious filter of one of these is God, and one of these is us. And as he kind of gets to this end part, it gets a little bit heavy in the room, because he says, okay, so I'm going to you know, have everything gathered up, then I'm going to separate them out, and part of it's going to be burned. <laughs> it's like... Man, I'm glad I came to church this morning. You know, that's exactly what I wanted to hear about burning wheat. And, and I'm, I'm kind of already starting to put together the implications of that. And I can, if I could just be honest for a second. Um, when I was thinking about this and starting to pray or prepare for this last weekend, I, uh, I started to think about this and really think, man, this, this, let's, let's not talk about this on parents' weekend. You know, like let's talk about something that's just like 100% good, 100% positive. Because, you know, parents, you're going to go with your students or your, your kids. I don't know what you call them at this point in life. Anyways, you're going to go and you're going to go to lunch and you're going to, you know, we're talking, you know, this whole thing has to do with judgment. And we don't like to talk about judgment. It's just terribly uncomfortable. You know, you're going to go to lunch afterwards and you're already thinking in your mind, you know, maybe this isn't the church for you. I love you, honey. But, you know, I hear this great church called City Church and you should perhaps go there. <laughs> I don't know, you know, he's young, you know, he doesn't know anything. I mean, look at him, you know, I mean, come on, get out of here. Now, here's what, here, here's, here's what I hope we find out. It is uncomfortable. I completely get that. But underneath the understanding of this parable is absolutely a critical idea of the person and the character of God. And here's what we're going to find out. That our relationship with God, the goodness of God, the love of God, the fact that God saw us in our sin, saw the fact that all of us have this central problem of sinfulness. And that's not an accusatory thing. That is a human condition thing. That God saw that and saw that there would be a judgment. That because of his holiness and because of his righteousness, there would be a judgment, but provided a way out from that. But understanding the holiness of God, the just nature of God, and the subsequent judgment of God brings depth. In other words, we don't fully understand what God has done for us until we understand what we could have gotten. And parents in the room, isn't that true? Some of your students, some of your kids... They don't understand. In fact, I'm starting to learn this. I never understood how much my parents did for me until I became. I never knew how much they gave up. 
I never, I, you know, I never understood how much they spent. I never knew the level and the, uh, the, the, the capacity for sleepless nights and payments for daycare, which rival college tuition. But now that I do, I have so much deeper of a respect and a love for my parents that I never would have had before. And so his disciples come to him after this, and rightly so, he gives a couple more parables, little explanation. And his disciples come to him afterwards, and it's almost like they're like, all right, so we understand that the, the parameters of a, the, the confines of a parable, we understand that one of this is God and one of this is us, and there was something about fire and stuff in there, so we want to make sure we have this one right. This one seems really, really, really important. So after Jesus gets done talking, gets done talking to a big crowd, his disciples come up to him afterwards and say, Jesus... Would you explain that one to us? Because that, that sounds like it has some implications to it. So let's not miss this. Verse 36. Then he left the crowds, he being Jesus, left the crowds that he was talking to, and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. In other words, Jesus, again, that one seemed like it had some gravity to it. So explain that to us. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom, and the weeds are the sons of the evil one. Now, Jesus is basically saying, let me just define who each of the players are in this. I'm not going to get to the point yet, but let me define some of the players, and then he's going to get to what exactly is the point of the parable. Because again, a parable was meant to communicate one thing and one thing specifically and one thing only. And people like me, pastors, like to take parables and parse out a thousand different meetings of, you know, so what does it mean because, you know, God, you know, the, the, the owner, the master fell asleep, does that mean like God sleep? It's like the seventh day he rested, and then like, so does God not aware? It's like, that's, that's not the point. Let me tell you what the point is, but in order to get the point, let me tell you who the different people are. And so the good seed is the sons of the kingdom, the weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. So now that we're clear on who's who and what's what, let me tell you what this means verse 40 just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire so will it be at the end of the age the son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth then the righteous will shine like stars or will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father and he who has ears let him hear. Now, what's fascinating about Jesus, when he taught this, there wasn't a ton, we talked about this last week, there wasn't a ton of application. His basic thought was, so this is what it means, and I just want you to know. This is what it means, he who has ears, let him hear. If you understand it, you understand it. If you don't understand it, you don't understand it. And as Jesus would talk in parables, sometimes, again, people would be incredibly confused, sometimes people would be incredibly enlightened. But in this, the essence of what Jesus was communicating is simple. That there will be, there will be, there will be a judgment. And the part of us that, that I think wrestles with that is because we love, again, to talk about the goodness of God. We love to talk about the grace of God. We love to talk about a God who saw us in our sin and gave his one and only son for us. But on the other side of that, or alongside of that, is a God who is so incredibly holy. In fact, I love John. Um, John was one of Jesus' disciples, or Jesus' disciples. 
And as John walked on planet Earth, he was supposed to be, or he was kind of really self-titled himself as the one Jesus loved, the disciple that Jesus loved. He was close. John was, by the way, the guy who, when Jesus was about to die on the cross, carrying his cross, he looks at Jesus, or John, Jesus looks at John and says, John, I'm so close to you. I want you to take care of my mother when I die. John was the guy who, before Jesus died, they were about to go to sleep one night, and John put his head on Jesus' chest, going to sleep, and he could hear the physical heartbeat of the Savior of the world. John had intimacy with Jesus. John was close to Jesus. John understood the love and the grace of the person of Jesus. But I want to read for you John's explanation, John's experience when he sees Jesus in his holiness. Now, we're going to go to Revelation chapter 1. So, if, in case this sermon wasn't weird enough yet, we're going to Revelation. Parents, you know, I understand. If you're going to go to lunch, never go to that church again. But just hang with me. John chapter, or, Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. This is John, by the way, experiencing Jesus. He kind of has this vision. He sees, he sees Jesus and he hears this voice. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. So he starts to see this one who he's like, man, it's like the son of man. In fact, this is the son of man, clothed with a long rope and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes, like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And I love how John explains this, by the way, because he's kind of saying, man, his eyes, he's trying to basically, he's trying to describe something that's absolutely indescribable because he's seeing God in his glory. And it's like his eyes were like this fire. And then I saw his feet, they were like this fire. I don't know. I just don't know really how to explain this, but it's just like this, how do I explain this indescribable, inexplicable thing that I'm seeing when I see God in his glory? And I love his reaction in verse 17. Because sometimes we view, when we, if we were to stand before God, if we were to talk to God, God, I got this question. Did Adam have a belly button? No, God, I got this question. The woman at the well, what was her name? You know, God, I got this question. But if we were to ever see God, if we were ever to see Jesus in his glory, we would do what John did in verse 17, that when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. None of us, none of us, the most spiritual person in this room, if we saw God in his glory, we would fall over as if we're dead. And John sees this. The guy who saw him as his person, saw him as the manifestation, saw him as God on planet earth, saw him in his glory, and could not even stand in his presence. You see, we have to understand that we don't simply serve a God of love. He is love. But we also serve a God who is incredibly holy. And we sing the words, holy, you know. I'm not going to sing that. (laughs) Nobody would come back next week. 
But the reality is, we very seldomly are impressed, are compelled by the holiness of God. That again, if we were to stand before him, not a darn person in here would be able to stand up. If we saw him physically, if we saw his glory physically, we would die. John, in this vision, just sees him, and as he sees him, he falls over in the vision as if he's dead. Because he is so impressed that he knew him personally, but when he saw his glory, it was a whole different side of God, and he could do nothing but fall over when he sees him. And Jesus' reaction brings the wholeness of God into focus, because Jesus obviously knows he's holy. Jesus obviously knows he's pure. Jesus obviously knows that he holds the keys. He holds the kingdom. He is the alpha. He is the omega. He is the beginning, and he is the end. But in that, he sees John. And he laid, verse 17, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death in Hades. In other words, John, I know that I am holy. I know that that's a little bit inexplicable to you. I know I'm going to want you to write this stuff down and you're going to have a difficult time explaining all this and explaining me and yourself. But let me just tell you, John, I am going to put my hand on you because I am with you. I am for you and do not fear. You see, this is the wholeness of the gospel. That God in his holiness knew judgment was coming. That eventually, as with everyone, we would be held accountable to our actions. We would be held accountable to our sinfulness. And again, not in a condemning way, but we all, myself included, everyone in this building, everyone in this room, in fact, everyone here on planet Earth has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all had times that we rebelled against God. We've all had times that we decided we know what we ought to do, we know what God says to do, and we're going to intentionally choose otherwise. That is not a condemning thing, or it's not a condemning you thing, that's a holistically, we all have this problem and are all equally condemned. But God saw that. And he understood the relational dynamic that he is holy, he is pure, he is blameless, he is just. And he saw us in our sinfulness and did not decide to hold our sinfulness against us, but decided to send his one and only son into the world. I love the way that Isaiah puts it. Because Isaiah talks about this, and he gets this kind of dynamic right. The way he describes it is, Isaiah says, you know what? He, being God, sits enthroned above the circles of the earth. He, God, is enthroned. He is in charge. He is king. And the people are like grasshoppers. That's not to say that you're an insignificant grasshopper. You were made in the image of God as a grasshopper. In fact, you're the best grasshopper that's around. But let me just tell you, compared to God, we are grasshoppers. Now, come on, come on. Get on, this, get on the same page with this. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I'm just thinking to myself, because I'm thinking grasshoppers being like, like I don't know about your family, but we're, we have a meat company, so we're, it's not like, okay, we're not against animal dying. Anyways, so, you know, grasshoppers are grasshoppers. Now, I have an 18-month-old daughter, and I love her with all my heart. Few people, few things can bring me to tears the way that she does. And let me just tell you, if a grasshopper is rebelling against me, I mean, shoot, if a grasshopper keeps me up at night, I'm ready to find a shoe. You know what I'm saying? Like, like a grasshopper rebelling against me, I can't imagine the magnitude of love that God had for us in his holiness that he saw us as grasshoppers and sent his one and only son to die for us. The love 
the inexplicable love that's displayed through that, an understanding who God is in His glory brings depth to the love and the goodness and the graciousness of God. But if we only exist in the love and the goodness and the graciousness of God category without understanding the holiness of God, it wholly robs the depth of what it meant when God sent His one and only Son into the world. That He saw us He understood the relational dynamic. He understood the separation. He understood that we would not be reconcilable to him because of our natural sinful state. And in seeing that, did not decide to count our sins against us, did not decide to judge us in an overly condemning way, did not decide to say, okay, well, good luck. But he saw us. And sent his one and only son into the world to die for us, to forgive us, and to offer us ultimate grace and ultimate love and ultimate acceptance. You see, this is why. This is why you can't earn your way into heaven. This is why you can't just be a good person. This is why you can't good person your way into heaven because as good of a person as I am, I'm still a sinful person. I heard a guy say it this way, once this way. He said, even the best of men are men at best. I will never be able to stand before the holiness of God and be righteous in his sight on my own account. It's just not possible. And so the Bible says it this way. That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe, whoever would place their faith, whoever would place their hope in the fact that when Jesus died, he died to take the punishment that we should have taken. And when he rose from the dead, he conquered death. He conquered destruction. He conquered our sin. And that when God sees us, he doesn't see us anymore. When God sees us, for those of us who have placed our faith in him, he sees us clothed with Jesus. That he sees his son when he sees, when he sees us. That is the righteousness and the goodness of Jesus. The goodness of God sending his one and only son. And he finishes by saying, For he did not come to the world to condemn the world. He did not come to the world. God's purpose in the world was not to say, you are condemned. I can't believe you. But to save it. Saved has an interesting connotation. Because we're in the South. And inevitably there's a grandma that says, you got to be saved. You know what that means? That means we are delivered from the judgment that our sin naturally and in a just way deserves. And that God saw us and saw there would be a judgment, but provided a way out from that judgment by sending his one and only son into the world. And that's good news for anybody and everybody. But that is exceptional news when we understand the glory of the God and the holiness of the God who offers it. That he not only offers, 
grace. He not only offers forgiveness. He not only offers transactionally a way out. He not only offers ultimate love, ultimate forgiveness, ultimate acceptance, that no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter the mistakes that you've made, no matter all the times that you've rebelled, no matter all the decisions that you've gone against, that he offers ultimate grace, ultimate love, ultimate forgiveness, and a way out from the judgment of God. But on top of the transactional, he gives a relational truth that you and I have been invited to not simply be forgiven, but to call him our heavenly Father, intimacy, relationship. You see, just pause and say, the reason why many of us don't read our Bible and spend time with God daily like we should is because we don't understand and fully comprehend the God that we are invited to have a relationship with. If we understood how good God is, if we understood how holy God is and that we are invited to not just be forgiven but to have a relationship with him, are you kidding me? There is nothing in my life that is more important than that. So I don't know who you are. I don't know where you're from. I know some of who you are. Some of you where you're from. But for all of us, this is different. And so how we're going to end today, as I would like to end sermons from time to time or end our time together in the Word from time to time, which is to just give you, for some of you, not all of you, some of you, an invitation to respond to perhaps for the first time, or perhaps for the first time in a long time, you understanding the grace of God and you acknowledging that Jesus came to die to provide a way out. Perhaps for you, you've been around church your entire life and never really accepted Jesus, never really professed your faith and your hope, and frankly, your trust in him for the salvation of your soul. That God would send his one and only son to die for a sinful, rebellious grasshopper like me. Because in light of the judgment of God, in light of the glory of God, in light of the holiness of God, is the love of God. And so if you're in here and you've never, or perhaps for the first time in a long time, put your faith and your hope and your trust in the work that Jesus did on the cross. We're not going to have an overly emotional moment. We're not going to have an emotional ending. In fact, we're not even going to have the band come back up. Here's what we're going to do. In a second, we're going to pray. I'm going to pray. I'm going to give an invitation. I'm going to count to three. When I count to three, I want you to raise your hand. I want you to know that raising your hand doesn't do anything. Raising your hand simply acknowledges what God's already doing in your heart and life. We're not going to sing 35 verses of come, of come As You Are, of Amazing Grace, and on and on. And if there's any others, you know what I mean? Because let me just tell you, if you get this, if you understand this, if you understand the value in a holy, holy, holy God that sent his one and only son to die for a grasshopper like me, that he would give me eternal life, that he would give me ultimate, ultimate forgiveness, ultimate acceptance, ultimate love, that he would provide a way out from the judgment of God that I should have gotten. And on top of that, he has invited me to call him my heavenly father and invited me into a relationship with him. There is absolutely nothing I can do to talk you out of that. If I said, okay, if you want that, if that's you in this room, here's what I want you to do. I want 
you to take both your shoes off. I want you to throw them up front. I want you to run around on all fours and quack like a duck, and that'll give you salvation. You would say, I'm glad I didn't wear laces today. Because you get it, and you'd be willing to do anything. And the great thing is, you don't have to do anything. It simply acknowledges what's already happening inside of you. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for being patient with us. God, we have a tendency to ignore your holiness. We have a tendency to ignore your righteousness. We have a tendency to ignore the fact that you are a good and a holy and a righteous judge who will judge us. God, we love to think about the idea of knowing what God will judge us, but that in truth ought to terrify us. But you have provided a way in your sovereignty, in your grace, and in your love for us. Inexplicably, you sent your son to die for a bunch of sinful, rebellious grasshoppers like us. You, a God who if we ever saw, we would fall over as if dead. And so if you're in here, and you for the first time, or for the first time in a long time, want to place your faith, your hope, and your trust for the salvation, for the forgiveness, for the acceptance, for to be, to be parted from and saved from the judgment of God. And it's not of your own doing. It's only through Jesus. That you believe that he died on the cross for you. To forgive. To take the punishment. And when he rose, he rose from the grave. And so if that's you, I'm going to count to three. And I want you to raise your hand. For the first time, first time in a long time. And if you get this, let me tell you, there's nothing I can do to talk you out of it. So you ready? One, two, three. Very cool. Very cool. Awesome. If that's you, just raise your hand. I want you to pray with me. Again, no, there's nothing about this prayer. There's nothing about this prayer that is salvific, but this simply acknowledges what you're already doing, experiencing, feeling, and accepting. Say, Jesus, I give you my life. Thank you for dying on the cross for taking the punishment that I should have taken. Taking the consequence of my sin that I should have taken. Thank you for forgiving me and thank you that a good, a great and a holy God would love and forgive sinful me. I believe, Jesus, that you are Lord. And I believe, Jesus, that you were raised from the dead. So come be my Lord. Be my Savior. I give you my life. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.